This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You might remember it was uh, about a year ago, uh, coming up uh, in a week or so, um, police confronted Aaron Driver outside a Strathroy home. uh, And then, of course, uh, a device was set off, um, a bomb of sort. Uh, It ended up in Driver being killed by police. Uh, the taxi driver uh, almost uh, severely hurt, barely got out with uh, what he did. Uh, RCMP are still trying to recreate the electronic bomb he detonated. To talk more about all of this, uh, Global News online investigative reporter Stuart Bell, and he is with us now. Hello, Stuart. How are you today? Good, thanks. How are you? Thank you for taking the time to join us. We haven't heard from the, uh, anything about this in a long time. It seemed once this case was, uh, you know, 24 hours old and uh, and driver dead, it, it just it was radio silence here. Why has this been kept under wraps for so long? What's been going on? Well, there were a number of investigations that began after the incident. Uh, there was one into the bomb itself, a uh, forensic investigation into what kind of bomb it was and how he constructed it. Um, the, the OPP did an investigation into whether the police shooting was justified, which uh, which concluded it was. But uh, the other two investigations uh, have have carried on and continue to this day. And the key one... Uh, is the RCMP's criminal investigation, which uh, I understand is pretty much done, except for one thing, and that's that um, when, after Driver was killed, they found that he was carrying an electronic device of some kind. Uh, And uh, it was so badly damaged in the explosion that happened uh, that he set off that they've been trying for the past year to reconstruct it in the hopes that they can extract whatever's on there, some you know evidence of his associations or uh, or his intentions or whatever. So I guess this uh, there's a technical unit within the RCMP which has been doing this painstaking process of trying to reassemble uh, an electronic device that was basically obliterated in an explosion. And so that's uh, that's ongoing, and and that's why the investigation carries on to this day. Uh, do they have any information from it at all? They're trying to get more. Do we know any anything else uh, about this information? Well, the device, no, they've gotten nothing off it so far. But, you know, we spoke to an expert in this area who told us that, uh, uh, well, one, even devices that have been really badly damaged, say an iPad or a phone that's been blown up, uh, you you can, the, the storage devices on there are, pretty uh, sturdy and uh, even ones that have been through you know fire and whatever you can eventually extract data from them so um, and even there was a case he cited in where a device had been blown up uh, in an explosion but 18 months later they were finally able to put it back together and uh, and extract the information from there so it's it's a it's a timely painstaking that you can imagine you know assembling little tiny pieces of microchips um, that's what's going on right now. Uh, do did they or, or did you find out any more information as far as the direction that the investigation was going in? Uh, confirmation on any sort of affiliation with ISIS or what his involvement was? Yeah, I'm not sure there was much really to learn from that because Driver himself was really an open book. I mean, he, this is not somebody who was. Uh, who was hiding his uh, his ideological 
Association. He was very openly supporting ISIS online in interviews. Um, he, you know, this is a guy who was openly pro-ISIS. When he was arrested in Winnipeg back in uh, 2015, police found that he'd been looking at bomb, uh, you know, how to construct bombs. So it's, you know, I don't, I'm not sure there was a big mystery. He was also, um, he had been communicating with, uh, with figures within ISIS whose sole mission was to basically instigate attacks within Western countries. So he has been acknowledged by ISIS then? Well, he after the after he was killed, ISIS did claim responsibility for for what he did and call him a you know a soldier of the Islamic State as they do. So he was you know he's one of those who I think they now the term they now use is sort of remote control uh, people that you know they haven't trained or aren't officially members of ISIS or whatever. They're just people that have have. Uh, for their own reasons, decided to adopt this mentality, this ideology, and that they have been able to coax into trying to commit attacks. Uh, do we hear or have we heard anything more about others being involved? Uh, was it strictly a, a lone wolf scenario? Were there other people he was working with uh, within the province, within the country? Yeah, I, I asked that question to the RCMP and they would not answer it, but I don't think so. I haven't seen any sign of that. But as I said, he was communicating online um, with uh, two people. One, his name was Junaid Hussein, another guy whose name was Rayad Khan. Rayad Khan and Junaid Hussein were British ISIS members based in Syria. And um, basically what they did was they established communications with people in within Western countries like Driver and then worked with them and coaxed them and encouraged them to carry out attacks um, in Western countries. And uh, Junaid Hussain, for example, I know was involved with a number of people in Canada um, trying to get them to carry out attacks. Um, he was in touch with another fellow from Toronto. Uh, there was another guy from Thunder Bay who he was in communications with. So I think this is where it was coming from. It was a... Uh, I don't think the associations that Driver had were physical in his, you know, immediate surroundings. They were people he was in touch with uh, through social media. Uh, I understand that this information initially that led to this, uh, you, know, you know, final encounter with Driver uh, in his sister's driveway, that the info came from uh, intelligence information from the United States. Are they still involved in this investigation? Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not sure they uh, ever really were, except in the sense of uh, the general kind of counterterrorism cooperation that goes on and the fact that the Americans were also um, involved in investigations that were surrounding Driver and his associates. So, for example, Driver had been in touch with people in the States, a couple of whom had been involved in terrorist incidents, one of them in Texas. Um, and uh, so I don't think, you know... There's an ongoing thing there. I think there was just a sharing of information about uh, the fact that Driver posted a video in which he was seemed to be uh, announcing that he was about to commit something. Uh, do we know anything more about him becoming radicalized? Uh, another situation of someone disenfranchised latches on to ISIS as uh, as a vehicle for their hate. Uh, how do we explain this? Well, again, I think it's 
you know, it, it's unique to him in the sense that he was a troubled young man. I don't think there's any dispute about that. He had some emotional difficulties, having lost his mother at a young age. He had been involved in, you know, drugs and that kind of thing, and was a young man who was really adrift. And, um, you know, and this is not <laughs> this is not an unusual state for that people to find themselves in. It just so happens, I think, that today um, people that are adrift in that way and perhaps angry and looking for something are finding this. This is the particular uh, ideology that they latch onto that gives them some sense of worth and belonging that they don't they feel that they're missing. So I think it's just you know it's it, that's that's what it comes down to in the end. Uh, if it it appears that it, that is the scenario that it's you know a disenfranchised person who becomes a lone wolf. Any idea what they hope to find? What sort of intelligence would help them in the future from such a device? Well, you know, I think they're just doing their due diligence. Uh, yeah. I don't think they want. They feel they can close the investigation until they've uh they've mined this to the very end because there could be stuff on there about uh, uh you know the fact that he the fact that driver carried this device with him uh as he embarked on his operation tells you that it had some significance to what he was doing or or else he wouldn't have brought it he would have left it back home so what is on there is it you know something about his plans was it you know a video was there is there something about who he's communicating with or something financial who knows? But it may be nothing. In fact, they may never be able to reconstruct this device. But I think the feeling among police is that they have a duty to follow it through to the end um, before they announce that this case is closed. And as your expert said, uh, there's cases. There's been cases where this gets put on file, and then the technology exists to 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 extract such information in the future. Yeah, I mean that that was really interesting too from this uh, this expert we spoke to Daniel Tobak who said that uh you know one thing that police sometimes do is they'll say nope, we can't we can't do it. We've gone as far as we can with this device and we can't get anything off it off it. But they'll just shelve it for a while uh and hope that technology catches up to the point where they're able to then go back and then um get what they can off of it. Uh, do you get the feeling at all that uh, officials don't have the resources they need to do these types of investigation? Uh, are, are they swamped with this stuff? Well, I mean, you recall after the incidents in October 2014 when there was a real surge in uh, not only people that were coming and going to, uh, to places like uh, ISIS territory, but uh, but they were returning and that were being stopped and um, the, the RCMP, in particular, uh, took hundreds of officers off um, other units and brought them into the, the national security enforcement teams. So something like 600 officers, I think, that were you that have beefed up those uh, those investigative units. So I think you know that uh, in terms of uh, officers on these cases, they uh, that's how they dealt with it. Stuart Bell has been with us, online investigative reporter for Global News. Stuart, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. With work, social responsibilities, family, your own personal goals, it's easy to feel stressed and exhausted. But are you burnt out? Are you fried? How do you know when you're burnt out? Maybe you're always burnt out, so you really don't know if it feels any different or not. 
that's probably a sign you're burnt out. Uh, let's bring in Timothy Gordon, registered social worker. He is with us now. Hello, Tim. How are you today? Scott, I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show again, buddy. Thanks for taking the time. Greatly appreciated. Uh, is there such a thing as burnout? Is it a medical term? Oh, man. Yeah. Burnout definitely exists. And Scott, you would be shocked to hear myself as a local social worker, how much I get invited to come out to organizations and work with them to talk about burnout and actually help them prevent it. There isn't a diagnosis that you would go to your doctor and get of burnout. Um, It's not a DSM uh, diagnosis, but it is something that psychologists, social workers, um, some GPs and psychiatrists definitely ask for when you're talking or uh, look for when you're talking about workplace related stress, when you're talking about issues that are occurring at work where people are having a really hard time functioning. So burnout is definitely a real thing and it's costing us a lot of money. In Canada alone, it accounts for 30% of workplace related illness, Scott, 30%. And it also accounts for more than $6 billion in losses for businesses in Canada. So what is burnout? What are the symptoms? Okay, so burnout, I'll, I'll give you the technical definition here. So it's a, it's a syndrome, so it's like a set of behaviors, feelings that people might be going through um, that includes things like emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, um, reduced personal accomplishment. So let me take you through, and even yourself, Scott, you may not want to self-disclose, although you're a pretty self-disclosing guy on the radio. I really like that about you. Um, but your listeners could even just kind of go through this mental checklist here that we actually use, this is a standard and reliable instrument to uh, predict workplace burnout. So I'll ask you five simple questions. And you can rate yourself from never, rarely, sometimes, often, all the way up to this happens for me all the time. This is very often. So do you feel emotionally drained from your work? Do you feel used up at the end of your work day? Hmm. Do you feel burned out by your work? Do you feel nervous or stressed? Are you tired when you get up to face your job? So those are measures that don't just look at stress, because stress is different from burnout. This is specifically focusing on your relationship to your workplace. And are you experiencing workplace stress? And it's most prevalent in helping professionals. So your listeners who I know are nurses, social workers, let's say EAs, teachers, people who are in those helping roles, this is more prevalent in them. And this progressive loss of idealism, energy, purpose uh, that's experienced by people in the helping professions, we used to call this you know, compassion fatigue, um, is a result of the conditions of the workplace. Uh, is it always work-related? Absolutely. I mean, because burnout is a work-related measure. And so we could talk about stress differently, Mm -hmm. but burnout very specifically has to do with the workplace environment, with our role in the workplace, how we see ourselves interacting with in the workplace, how much control we have over really simple things like, for example, um, your hours, your autonomy in your job, your job duties. Uh, Do you feel like you have somebody lording over you and micromanaging you? Well, If you do, that's actually the type of environment that breeds workplace burnout. Um, Workers really benefit from having lots of autonomy, the ability to have, uh, to be able to think creatively about the problems that they're working on, the ability to pick and choose uh, how they do the behaviors that they do at work. This has even been prevalent in, uh, you know, Japanese factories have have looked at this and and, uh, analyzed how to increase 
uh, or decrease burnout by having workers do behaviors, even in an industrial organization, uh, that have more autonomy that actually violate the way that we look at things like auto manufacturing over here, for example, where it's like nobody stops the line. Yeah. Uh, whereas Japanese workers, it's, uh, you know, where burnout is very low, um, manufacturers allow people to stop the line and address problems with autonomy. So uh, burnout, uh, they're comparing it actually to something like diabetes in the sense that you can control it, type 2 diabetes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's fair to say that, that uh, burnout as a, as a symptom of uh, the workplace environment is something that you yourself can be predisposed to. So, so let, me, let me whip you through some of the things that contribute to workplace burnout um, or risk of burnout in, in the workplace. So work overload, that lack of autonomy let's say a lack of fairness, having a conflict in values, insufficient reward or acknowledgement for the work that you actually do. Um, and this tends to happen with younger folks who are earlier in their career who have a lack of social support. So maybe they're single, maybe they don't have kids at home, maybe they're living by themselves, maybe they're disconnected from friends. And the demographic also includes people who tend to have a higher level of education. Now, the medicine for burnout, or let's say the preventative medicine, is good medicine for a lot of different situations. So things like having adequate sleep, ensuring that you have really good nutrition, having regular physical activity, taking time off work and scheduling activities that you actually enjoy that maybe aren't related to your work, right? Having a, a real life outside of work, so to speak, engaging in social interactions, meditating, recognizing your own limits. That could include saying things like no, right? Um, doing things like seeking support from friends, maybe even reaching out to colleagues, setting realistic goals for yourself. So rather than really conceptualizing who you are as, okay, this is who I am in my job. I need to perform this way. Otherwise, I'm a failure. Otherwise, I'm not meeting what I need to do. Setting more realistic goals and more gentle with yourself. Try to enhance your communication skills. This is especially prevalent for people who have a hard time saying no or taking breaks from their work. And another thing that's just like darn good medicine for people to uh, reduce burnout is to take brief breaks while they're at work. Um, so these things can actually help us reduce burnout. And these are things, skills that people can do, things that people can learn, just like with diabetes, right? Managing your uh, exercise and your diet can help you uh, manage your diabetes. I mean, this is what people can actually be doing to manage their burnout. Are, is the culture changing? I mean, you know, it, it used to be, uh, you know, even those people who went downstairs for a smoke, my goodness, that's 15 minutes they're taking going for a smoke. How dare that's they right. do that? I, I mean, it was that's like, right. you know, we're very quick to piss on everybody who's not working as hard as we think we are. Uh, is that culture changing? Are we realizing you know what? It's not. It's not the whole world. We need to gap out here for a bit and and and, and just chill. I I love what you just said there, Scott. Because I mean, I think that we have developed in the West this. Uh, you know, this isn't just a thought. I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people writing on this topic, right? We've developed a sink or swim culture, and your reference was perfect. I mean, uh, not that I am. Uh, saying that people should take up smoking in order to reduce workplace burnout. <laughs> Please let, let me state that explicitly. I'm not saying that. Um, but what I am saying is that that idea of having these regular take a breath, like how about, how about rather than smoke breaks, why don't we have a take a, a lap around the building? Like just live your life, get outside. You know, even if it's a, you know, kind of a cruddy day, you know, just take a lap around the building take a breath on purpose so that you have a moment to remove yourself from your workplace. And that right there, 
is likely going to have a very specific impact on people where they're going to be able to remove themselves from their work and not be so in it. And this culture that we've created, this sink or swim, this, you know, being wedded to your work, that your value as a person is directly uh, linked to your outcomes in your work is really hazardous. You know, I mean, we like to criticize uh, European countries because, I mean, you know, in, in certain European countries, people take the entire month of August off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just came back from Italy, man, and, you know, uh, between two and four, good luck. It's like everything shuts down. And, totally. and, and everybody's like, gee, can I buy something now? It's like, no, relax. No. Uh, you've no, had lunch, now wait for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, I got to tell you, I love picturing you in Italy trying to, like, buy an orange at a market. You're like, what is going on here? <laughs> it wasn't an orange, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> here's a question from a listener. Is burnout result of emotional abuse by someone? Okay, so emotional abuse by someone, straight up, we're talking about bullying. That, that's, not, that's not burnout, right? Now, emotional abuse by someone can contribute to burnout, for sure. But that's only, uh, that would be a sort of proverbial drop in the bucket. Um, burnout really has more to do with how we interact with our workplace. And, and burnout really tries to put us at the center of that and say, how can you take on a more active and assertive role in your health? When somebody is being a bully at work, and I, I know we've covered this on the show before, but I mean, those can largely be unworkable situations. Bullying, I mean, we've, we've talked about this, it costs employers lots in lost productivity. Um, and so bullying needs to be looked at as a sort of separate thing from burnout. It can contribute to burnout. It can contribute to a toxic work environment for sure. Um, but that would definitely be something different that we would look at and talk about in a different way. And, and bullying is very prevalent in workplaces in Canada, unfortunately, as well. Uh, another question from a listener. Uh, how is one's over-expectations in their personal life, how does that play a role in their stages of burnout? Oh, that's a great question. And it's actually... I feel like when somebody asks a question like that, they're asking it from a place of knowing. So just to that listener, I want to, you know, the, the, the professional in me, the person in me who longs to succeed, you know, bows to the person in you who, who knows that this is the, this dog's view. Um, the way that we see ourselves in our personal lives, um, you know, Scott, I listen to the show. I know, I feel like I know a little bit about you just by being a listener um, and having interacted with you on the air. You know, you, you take these, I think, hard to talk about stances on, on topics. So let's imagine somebody who's an advocate for social issues, uh, somebody who really uh, believes in having critical discourse around issues, somebody who has a strong moral compass. Now, those are beautiful, wonderful qualities. But let's take that person out of their home life, out of their interactions with their friends. Let's drop them into a workplace. And let's say that this person takes that strong moral compass to their workplace and they start to recognize that there's some injustices, there's some imbalances, right? Maybe Scott shows up at work and says, hey, how come we don't have, uh, how come we don't compensate our production staff appropriately? Or, or Scott says, you know, how come we only cover issues of privilege and we don't actually look at issues of marginalization and oppression? And so Scott starts to apply his strong moral compass to that workplace and he's not getting results. And in fact, he starts getting pushback. And rather than seeing this as a product of the environment that he lives in, a limitation of the system that he's trying to push back against, Scott starts to conceptualize that as being his own failure, that he's failing his own values. And he sees the direct outcome 
uh, of his inability to succeed here as a judgment on Scott. Scott says, I am my work, right? And so that we see that direct translation right there. Uh, we're talking about a guy who's going to get pretty burnt out probably. Uh, one one question, um, is, is the best medicine for burnout to make more cash? No way. No, uh, no. Uh, is that your question, Scott? No, that's not mine. I'm reading that. <laughs> that is definitely not the best. But, you know, I've, uh, it reminds me of the David Lee Roth quote that says, you know, money can't buy happiness, but it certainly can buy you a big enough yacht you can sail right up next to it. That's right. Okay. All right. I, you, you, you put the bait out there. I'm going to bite it, Scott. I think you got into a bigger conversation than you thought you were here, buddy. So money. Let's look at who levels of happiness. Subjective units of happiness in people who make money. Uh, you only need to make, I think it's, it's, ba- I think it's barely like 2 to 4% above the poverty rate, Scott, in order to have the same amount of happiness that anybody else does. And, you know, Notorious B.I.G., he had it right, right? The more money, more problems, baby. So you start making really solid amounts of cash, right? And, and you're, not, you're not like you know, singing Margaritaville and retiring. No way, you're trying to make more money. You're now saying things like, ooh, well, I can't trust this person and I need to figure out other ways to make my money work for me. You're trying to build wealth even bigger, right? You want to build an empire. It's not cool enough that you, you know, created the world's first electric car company. Now you got to start putting people on the moon, Scott, right? <laughs> you know, now you have to start buying up, uh, you know, Solar City, and you got to turn that, you know, I'm talking about Elon Musk here, right? I mean, you know, um, the desire for wealth begets more desire for wealth here. And, and we see that right across uh, all kinds of research on people who make a lot of money. So is David Lee Roth wrong? No, there are people who can do that, who can make money, they can get out of the rat race, and they can go and live in Costa Rica or retire and just live off of that nest egg and enjoy their family. But again, we're talking about people who their values aren't aligned with money. Their values are aligned with how can I get out of this system so that I can connect more deeply with my family? How can I connect more deeply with myself? Maybe, Scott, the water matters to you. And you say, you know what? I'm going to get out of this whole entertainment biz eventually, and I'm going to buy a little villa, you know, down, you know, off the coast of Italy, you know, you're going to live in Malta or something, right? And, and you're down there rolling your own stogies and selling them or something, right? And, you know, that's what's in your heart. That's why you're working. So values the qualities that we want to be about actually is a major determinant of how well people do with their quality of life. And that is a way better measure than cash money because people with lots of cash money are not happier, period. I'm sorry, Tim, are you still talking? I was thinking about Italy there for a minute. No, I was... <laughs> so how do you know when you're burnt out? Okay, you know when you're burnt out when you're waking up exhausted and you don't want to go to work. You're dreading going to work. You know that you are exhausted when you are just emotionally, you're physically drained from work. You don't want to do this stuff. Um, we're talking about people who they're, they're finishing up their workday. They feel emotionally used. They feel, um, the, the term I want to use is like, they, they just feel like they, they're exhausted by their work. Um, emotional emptiness. They have little or no desire to relate to uh, the clients that they serve. You know, if, if you're a mechanic right now and you're listening to us and you're in there and you're thinking like, I do not want to explain this part, spark plug issue to one of my clients. Like I just, I, I cannot connect with people right now. You're probably burnt out. If you're feeling indifferent, cynical towards your work, you don't care about it. You're disinterested or bitter about it. You're probably burnt out. Um, if you see your failures as you at work, so like when you make mistakes, you're a failure. 
we're talking about burnout. If you don't see yourself as capable of doing your work, you can't see yourself as being caring about the work that you do or competent, we're talking about burnout. Um, absenteeism from work, you find yourself avoiding work, trying not to think about work, distract yourself. Um, we're talking about burnout. And lastly, this other one, how about just the people who are performing their responsibilities without any sense of involvement or commitment, any enthusiasm about the work? It's like, you know what? I'm here. I'm going to do what I need to do. And these are the people who are saying, you know what? I'm going to put my best self in. I'm going to work for my time off. I'm working for my Italy vacation, right? These are the people who are saying, I don't care what the outcome is, whatever. I'm clocking in. I'm clocking out. If that's you, you're probably dealing with burnout. You got to take a hard look at that. Uh, one more. Lots of people uh, brag about, oh, I don't need much sleep. I only get four or five hours sleep a night. That's, you know, yeah. it's uh, sleep's overrated. I mean, is this just not a train wreck waiting to happen? You know, it, it could be. I mean, biologically, everybody is different. So each person knows what good sleep is for them. But if you're using, let's say, the sleep argument as a weapon, and I've got a buddy that's just like this, Scott. You know, I've got a buddy who will, like, text me at, like, you know, 7.30 a.m. And I, I haven't started to see clients yet and I'm still getting myself ready for the day. And he's like, what do you mean you haven't got your day started yet? I've already built a shed. I've already swung by home yeah. people. Come on. So those folks, um, if you're using your lack of sleep, if you're wielding it as a weapon to criticize others, yikes. Okay. Now, some people, biologically, they just don't need a lot of sleep. And hey, good on them. I, I'm the type of person that needs a solid eight hours of sleep. Um, but practicing good sleep hygiene is one of the first things that we look for when we talk about people's mental health. Getting a good amount of sleep, waking up feeling rested is important. Tim Gordon has been with us, registered social worker, talking about burnout. Are you burnt out? And uh, how do you tell? Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Scott. It's so great being on the show with you. Hope you had a great holiday. It's good to have you back, buddy. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A leaked transcript of a conversation between Trump and the Mexican president has been uh, published in the Washington Post. Uh, all kinds of, uh, I guess, all kinds of uh, information in regard to, uh, this was back in January, just shortly after the inauguration, uh, Trump's feeling about uh, NAFTA and, uh, of course, uh, building the wall, which is probably most astounding out of all of this, uh, all of the information in this transcript. Let's bring in George Breckenridge, retired political science professor, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, George. How are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm fine. Thanks for taking the time to join us. As always, George, we greatly appreciate this. No problem. I don't know where to start with this. Uh, <laughs> Because <laughs> it seems as if the Mexican wall story makes uh, the whole free trade thing uh, a little, um, yeah. a little uh, well, irrelevant. But uh, let's start with the with the free trade thing. Yeah. I guess when I first heard this, and and you know, this is him talking to the Mexican president, right. and he's speaking favorably about Canada, yeah. which to me, I would think that would be Trump in any negotiation. When he's talking to the other guy, he's going to you know make the other guy uh, sound in his favor in some way. Uh, plus, this was back in January, and this man seems seems to change his mind over the course of a twenty four hour day, let alone several months. So him saying to the Mexican president that, yeah, Canada's the least of our worries, are we really to take too much from that? Oh, I think so. I think so. He was, he was uh, 
sort of pushing Mexico because of their trade deficit that America has at least had at that time with Mexico. And he's using that as an excuse. He's threatening to put up a tariff, which, of course, has disappeared in the, in the discussion. Um, whereas in Canada's case, uh, it is true, actually, although he doesn't specifically say it, that that the trade is much more has traditionally been much more balanced between the two. So there isn't a huge trade deficit. Americans don't have a huge trade deficit with Canada. So he's using that to say, well, you know, he says uh, um, we have a very fair relationship with Canada. It's been much more balanced and much more fair. So we don't have to worry about Canada. We don't even think about them. So he's putting Canada aside because he's, he's trying to press Mexico on the, on the whole trade question. So that being said, can those negotiating NAFTA, uh, from our point of view, use this uh, to their advantage in some way? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, the, this has been the Canadian argument all along, uh, not only in general, but also getting into a lot of specifics. I think that the uh, Trudeau government has played this very well. Uh, by you know sort of fanning out across the United States, talking to not only to Congress but to the governors. He, Trudeau was invited to speak to the national governors group um, and to individual governors as well as to the people in the White House to emphasize how interlinked the two to the trade between the two countries is, and that anything that damages anything that attempts to damage our trade with them also damages them. I think that's absolutely fundamental to the Canadian case. And they've made it very, you know, they've, they've had a lot of people down there. They have had the provincial people. They've set up a now a new advisory council with prominent conservatives on it. You know, I think this is exactly the right way to go. And, uh, and I think the underlying question, see, that he was using against Mexico was they have this trade deficit. Now, economists will argue about how serious or how significant that actually is. But nevertheless, for him, it looks like, you know, it looks like a problem. And Canada, that is simply not the case. And so the fundamental argument for treating Canada the way he was talking about treating Mexico, I would like to treat Mexico, simply didn't exist. Yeah, but when I think Canadian officials would point this out to Trump, he'd say, ah, yeah, but I was just putting the boots to the Mexican president, that's all. <laughs> I mean, like, he'd be very open about it. Well, yeah, that's true at that at that particular time. But most of the comments he's made, he's made the occasional. I mean, as you know, as you've said, you know, he's all over the place on all of these issues. So he's made the occasional nasty comment about Canada as well. But from mostly, fundamentally, he's 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 been fairly positive, and he obviously has you know a good relationship with with Justin, and so that helps. And um, I think another good thing about this, the good sign, the, the negotiations are supposed to start, I think, in a couple of weeks. And I, what I think, one, two things, I think. One is the both sides have agreed to let the, the chief negotiator be an experienced negotiator. So they're putting the professionals in charge of actual negotiating. Mm-hmm. And I think that's extremely important because these are, in both sides, these are people who have a lot of experience in dealing with these kind of issues. So you don't have the kind of amateur hour bursting out of the White House, you know, which is basically what you get out of the White House. I think that's extremely important. And as I said, the other thing is, of course, that Congress would have to act if there's any substantial change. And after Congress would have to act, and what we're seeing right now very clearly for the first time, really, as clearly as this, is Congress considers the president largely irrelevant. They really do. His own party is, you know, is, is what happened over, over the health care stuff, and then the Congress passing these, 
new sanctions on Russia, you know, right. overwhelmingly, and knowing that he was very much against this. So I think the, the, the Republicans have just moved right away from him. And so the chances of, of any sort of substantial negative deal being passed through the Congress are very, is very, very unlikely. I mean, back in the day, it was the Republicans and the conservatives that were pro-trade and trying to push well, all this stuff right. through. The Republicans have always been heavily pro-trade. Yeah. Uh, he said Canada has been very rough on the United States. I mean, th- this was oh, back in January. Yeah, and then he changed the tune a few months later. So That's are right. we just are we just to assume it's, it's just the it's, bulk of his comments have been fairly positive about Canada? I think it's true to say. Uh, but what about more recently when you know he we first opened up the, the negotiations for NAFTA? Well, and, and at one point he was go- he was going to you know he was tear it up. leave NAFTA altogether. And his staff apparently called Trudeau or called the Canadian, you know, right. and, and asked Trudeau to talk to him, you know, and and uh, there were other people in the cabinet who talked to him and said, you know, you, you know, this is not a good idea, and he backed right off. And so after that, it was he, you know, it's more general talk about you know, general goals and that sort of thing. But as they, the fact that the, the actual negotiations are going to be handled by professionals. I think it's extremely important. There was a poll out uh, just recently this week that said 38% of Canadians fear America. Uh, Do you think that after hearing the comments of this transcript, they'll lighten up a bit? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think... What's happening to the the Trump story is very... More and fewer and fewer people fear him. Mm-hmm. And that's that's extremely bad for a president because a lot of the president's power and influence, particularly talking about domestic politics, but it's also true to, to a large extent in, in you know in, in the world affairs, uh, comes from being maybe not feared but respected, you know, and mm-hmm. taken seriously. And increasingly, we're seeing Trump, even including by his own party, simply not being taken seriously. He's not doing his homework. He's ignorant. He doesn't work on these things. He just shoots his mouth off. And uh, well, we talked about that before. The boy that cries wolf. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You know, and and so the I think it's very clear now. His party is just not taking him seriously at all. There, more and more Republicans are criticizing particular things about it, and that's a very bad sign for for a president who has any chance of being effective. In uh, in dealing with Washington, with the rest of Washington, I think he, I, this is, looks increasingly like a, like a very lame duck almost presidency already. Uh, the other th- uh, the other issue in this transcript was, yeah. of course, that of the wall, less yeah. concerning <laughs> of Canada, but certainly between Mexico and yeah. the United States. Uh, talking about building the wall, and yeah. and Trump says this is the least important thing we're talking about, but but politically it might be well, the exactly. most important. You know, he's begging the Mexican president not to talk about it, not to say that you know they're not going to they're not going to pay for the wall. It, it, the whole thing is ludicrous. But it, this shows very clearly. This is a week after once he's been inaugurated. It shows very clearly that he knows perfectly well. He's known all along. That this build the wall in Mexico will pay for is it. just it's just a slogan, yeah. which riled up his supporters and made them cheer and everything. It's not any kind of reality-based thing at all. But of course, he's worried. But politically, if the Mexican president keeps saying we are not going to pay for that wall, so he says, well, just don't say it. Don't say. Yeah, it. he tried to get him to stop talking That's about right. it. Even suggested <laughs> he would he would fudge. The Washington Post says Trump even suggested he would fudge it in in the end so that both sides could claim they didn't give in. Yes, that's right. So he's scrambling to to deal with the political consequences of of this 
of this really rather nasty slogan that he used. You know? Well, it actually quotes him as saying, we should both say we will work it out. It yeah. will work out in the formula somehow, Trump yeah. said, as opposed to you saying we will not pay That's and right. me saying we will not pay. That's like, right. uh, how will this be interpreted the way everything else is? Well, I think, uh, I, the, You I, know, I, opposition will yell and the supporters will go, so? Well, but I think a lot of I mean, a lot of his supporters, I think, realized a lot of this was show. Yeah. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a great show he was putting on, and you know, he would say, "Who's going to pay for the wall?" And they'd shout, "Mexico!" Yeah. And this was part of the entertainment development of thing. I mean, what he was, the reason he started out that way, and apparently somebody suggested to him that building a wall was a good way to a good shorthand way of saying. You know, we're sort of anti-immigrant. I agree with yeah. you. I'm afraid of immigrants, particularly too many Mexicans. And uh, he found that it worked, you know, and the crowd loved it. And then he added that Mexico will pay for it. And so you get this call and response kind of thing going on. Mm. So I think a lot of his supporters realized that this was, you know, this was just for show. So, so uh, how will this be interpreted in the United States? Well, it it it. it, it it reveals um, even more than usual. I mean, you know, very early on, the emperor has no clothes. I mean, this is, you know, it's kind of a joke that he was already scrambling to get political cover for what he knew had been, you know, an empty slogan that he'd been using. So it, it all adds to the sense that this is a guy who is an amateur, even very ignorant both politically and in terms of the issues, but he doesn't work at it. He doesn't bone up on the issues the way he would need to do to have any influence. So if you're a Trump supporter and, you know, you were voting in the alternative, you were voting anti-establishment, you were voting for change, at what point do you feel this guy's let me down? Yeah, that's difficult to say. I mean, the the, the thing that most of them... I mean, the, the, the analyses that have been done on the voting show that what the, the one thing that almost all Trump voters had in common was that they really disliked Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. So, they, so that was kind of a unifying factor among the people who ended up voting for Trump. And, of course, she's no longer a factor in the, an element in the, in the equation at all. Um, it's difficult to know. I mean, what most of the people wanted were either uh, quite, legi- quite legitimately jobs, you know. And now he's he's crazy not to keep focusing on that. I mean, that uh, there's there's a limit to what any president can do about that, of course. But he can do a lot of symbolic stuff, and uh, and uh, keep keep appealing to them on that issue. The other one, of course, is he's he played to their prejudices, to their fears, their yeah. anxieties about immigration and such. And there's nothing he can really do about that. There's a new proposal to to slash uh, the size of of immigration into the United States. That's not going anywhere. Hmm. Immediately, other Republicans said, "No, you know, well, this is a bad idea." Uh, Trump tweeted a few hours ago, business is looking better than ever with business enthusiasm at yeah. record levels, stock market yeah. at an all-time high. That right. just doesn't happen. Well, it, I mean, is business better than we think it is? No, I mean, but the business, the the general level of activity has, has continued on the kind of steady, kind of slow improvement that was going on under Obama for several years. Now, the stock, the economists have long argued about the significance of the stock market 
ups and downs for actual economic activity, you know, real economic activity. The, the, the two things are not directly related at all because, you know, this stock exchange is basically gambling. You know, people are gambling on the way in which they expect things to move in the future. And one of the underlying factors in in this long buildup of the stock market, um, which we know we started under Obama, of course, it didn't start under under Trump, um, is cheap money. You know, interest rates have been so low for yeah. so long. There's a lot of cheap money, but but the relationship between the what's happening in the stock market and the real economy has always been a very kind of it, there's no terribly direct relationship between the two. In fact. Uh, Donald Trump has uh, continually spewed the line fake news, yet he's constantly getting caught by fact checkers. That's right. Uh, This story in the Washington Post about the wall, I mean, does this just make people uh, realize that he's the creator of his own fake news? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a... a Initially, Trump was such a surprise, and his success was such a surprise. It took a long people, a long time for for a lot of people to 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 look at this clear, you know, this this clearly and to see it for what it was. It was a very skillful campaign, playing on people's fears, playing to an audience that the Republican Party had really, and both the parties had really stopped taking very seriously, taking their concerns and their anxieties seriously. So, but but so much of it was really for show, and during the whole campaign, you know, so much of it was just nonsense or lies, and, you know, or fantasy, the things he said, you know, and, and uh, people kind of hoped that once he got into the White House, the whole thing would become much more serious. But of course, it doesn't. Yeah, he's still the same person. You know, he is what he is. Uh, so changes all this world of fantasy and lies and. <laughs> It's still it's still going on, you know. And more and more people are just on to the whole thing and fed up with it. A new uh, communications crew and yeah. and press secretary and such. Uh, that yeah. that that turnover was pretty quick. Uh, all I guess orchestrated by John Kelly, the new chief of staff. Yeah, yeah. Military guy. Is he going to change the flavor, or well, will he, he be arguing the, with he's them the too? Only chance they've got. I mean, you know, this is the this is the question: whether he can really bring order. He's exactly the kind of guy you would need. Uh, both President Carter and President Clinton had to pull in somebody like that because their their upper White House operations were a bit shambolic. But but uh, and and so if if Kelly isn't able to bring order, then nobody can. But the real question, of course, is the the disorder, the chaos is really created from the top. It's it's Trump who's creating the disorder by. By tweeting all kinds of stuff, and um, the question is whether what kind of relationship is Kelly going to actually have with Trump? Is it possible for him to rein him in, to some extent at least, which is really what's needed to bring some kind of coherence to the White House operations? And until that happens, as I say, the Congress is just his own party, including, is just not going to take him seriously at all. You talked about how the majority of Americans voted the way they did because it was an anti-Hillary vote, yeah, yeah. an anti-Hillary anti vote. It's yeah. an anti-establishment, anything but the you know the incumbent, yeah. sort of speak. Um, are people seeing um, are people seeing relief from that with the vote that they cast? Will they feel the same animosity towards the Republicans as they did towards the Democrats in the next election? 
Well, uh, it, it, well, the interesting thing is the, with the midterm elections, where most of the Congress is up for election at the end of 2018, um, that's going to be very interesting to, <clears throat> to see whether the Republican Party gets punished for simply not being able, not doing what they said they were going to do. They made all these promises, principally, you know, we're going to repeal Obamacare, and they, they, have not, they are not able to do it. They're far too badly divided to do it. And the expectation is, in any case, uh, any president, almost almost every president, loses a, his party loses a lot of seats in the midterm elections. Uh-huh. And so the expectation would be, the normal expectation would be that the, Demo- the Republicans will lose 20-some seats, at least. And the, Demo- the, the Democrats need to pick up, I think, about 24. To take are they home. providing the alternative yet? I mean, you well, know, they, a lot they, of people are complaining that all they're doing is, is well, they, you know, peeing on Trump as opposed to supplying well, I mean, the alternative. To, to some extent. I mean, you, you know, when, as the old saying in politics goes, when your enemy's making a fool of himself, you know, stay out of it. Yeah. Let him, let him go ahead. But I think a lot of them are realizing that they, they can't, that's not good enough. And to some extent, that's how Hillary ran the general election campaign, and it didn't work. You got to have something positive to say yourself. So they're, they're, I think they understand that the leaders in Congress, the leaders of the elections in Congress, and they're trying to find mainly an economic message. I think uh, about about jobs and retraining and stuff, stuff of that sort, um, knowing that they can't simply rely on being anti-Trump. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.